Hi, welcome to the latest episode of my podcast, which is the audio recording of an interview. The video version is available on Facebook, YouTube, and most of the time on Instagram. My Facebook group is called Donna's Interviews, Reviews and Giveaways, and all the links to everything else are on there. Um, If you want any feedback or if you want to suggest any authors you'd like to see, I'd really appreciate it. Hope you enjoy. Right then. (laughs) Good afternoon. Today I have Alex Scarrow. Hi, Alex. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, so I'm... Alex Garrow, uh, writer of, uh, oh, where's a copy? <laughs> First in the DCI Boyd series, out today, uh, the second, uh, all Burns new Burns. And um, I've been writing for the writing game since about 2006, uh, when I got to publish by uh, Orion to, to do thrillers. And then a little later on by Puffin to do uh, the Time Riders series, which is a teen teen series. Uh, so I've been doing it for a while. But um, this, this series, this crime series, is one where I've decided to go it alone and, and publish it myself. And it has been so liberating being able to, to publish without the whole cookie cutter machine of a, of a big grinding publisher behind you. Um, and I'm loving it. It's really good fun. Really, really good fun writing the series so far. <laughs> a lot of work for uh, Before I was into writing, um, well, when I left school, I spent the first 10 years of my life trying to get a record deal. So uh, I was with a, a bunch of rock bands uh, doing gigs everywhere and doing some festivals, but we never got that record contract. We never got famous. And I think I was about uh, 27 when I realised that probably I ought to have a B-plan uh, you know, job. And uh, I went looking for a job. Uh, this would be back in the late 90s, I suppose. Mid to late 94. Uh, I'm so lucky. I've been so incredibly lucky on a, a few occasions in my life. And this is one of them. There's me looking for a job with a CV that was basically a blank piece of paper. Uh, no job experience, just oh, I could play guitar. And um, I managed to get a job working for a computer games company as a, as a graphic artist. And then I spent 10 years in that industry, climbing the ranks to something called a senior games designer. Um, hell of a laugh. But I, I think I got to the point where I just had a game design burnout. Um, and found myself coming full circle back to something I'd done when I was much younger, which was writing. So that's me. That's, that's, uh, I, I've given you actually about 30 years of my life. Uh. Thank you very much. Much appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to mentally work out how old you are. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs> I'm just trying to think. In oh, see, I look great for <laughs> I look great for You're like 35, right? Surely not much older than that. <laughs> oh, bless you. Bless you. <laughs> Check will be in the post. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> so you said you started writing when you were young, so it's obviously something you always wanted to do. I think we lost it, had a bit of a breakdown there. Yeah. You said, again. Um, you said you wrote when you were young, so it's obviously something you always wanted to do. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, well, both my brother, of course, you may know Simon Scarrow. Uh, he writes uh, a Roman series and he's just embarking on writing crime. Um, but as young siblings, we were, we were always very much driven by creative pursuits. Uh, we were both writing stories and scripts um, as teenagers making our own movies, uh, basically uh, remaking Star Wars on a budget of 57 pence and some coloured straws. And, um, 
I'd love to look at those old films now. Um, we used to make it with a Super 8. And um, so it's always been kind of in our blood to, to be storytellers in one way or another. Um, and I think writing has actually turned out to be the best fit for me because my problem is I'm not a very good team player. I, um, I suppose, you know, that's what creatives tend to be like. They're quite sort of selfish in their creative pursuit. They want to do something their way with their vision. And I remember when I was in the various bands that I was in, you know, you've only got four people, but it's amazing how many different ways four people want one song to go. You know, the drummer wants to hear it one way, the guitarist the other, the singer the other. And we used to come to blows uh, during our rehearsal sessions. And, and then working in games. I mean, you have teams of hundreds of people. And if you're a senior designer and you're trying to get, you know, 250 young guys and girls um, seeing your vision, you find yourself sort of managing more than creating. But I think with writing, it's, um, you, it's a team of one, well, actually a team of me and Debbie uh, and Aussie. Um, and, um, but it's a lot less people to please uh, and we're much more lean machine than going through, through a traditional publisher. Uh, and boy, do I like that. Um, and what made you decide to finally go for it and start writing after you finished game designing? What it was, I'll tell you, um, so I was working in games design and it was getting more and more corporate. I was finding I was doing more and more uh, personnel management um, and less and less creative stuff. And I kept coming up with these game designs for the board of directors and they kept sort of sending them away because they were, what they wanted was uh, games like, um, I don't know how, how gamey you are, but games like sort of Quake or Doom or Call of Duty where basically, you know, you've got a gun like this and you're just killing stuff. And I was trying to, uh, yeah, you have such a powerful creative platform with software that you could do so much more than just shoot stuff. Um, but they kept saying, no, no, they said, no, we want something a bit more like Call of Duty or, or Fortnite. And um, so I just, I think I just snapped one day and I, was, I, 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 I wouldn't call it a nervous breakdown, but I would say, I'd definitely call it a paddy. I threw my toys out the pram and quit. Um, and, uh, got into it to writing uh, I started out writing um, screenplays I think that's about about four years trying to break into Hollywood which um, is, is crazy hard uh, especially if you're not actually living in Hollywood you you can't do a Hollywood career over phone connection you've got to be there networking and, and doing lunch to the right people so I was, that was never going to happen but in the process of writing these screenplays and developing some stories, I, um, I found myself develop, developing novels. And um, the very first novel I wrote was a book called A Thousand Sons, which was uh, a wartime thriller. And the basic premise was that the, in the dying months of the Second World War, the, the Nazis actually did manage to make one nuke uh, they managed to amass enough sort of plutonium and refine it to make one nuke. And it's like, what do you do with that bomb? Well, their thinking was, well, if we drop it on the Americans, we can demonstrate to them that we have this technology. And would they like to help us push the Russians back out of Berlin? Because if the Russians get this before you do, you're really stuffed. Um, so it was that kind of premise behind it. And the story was about this bomber, this B-17 bomber, which is an American bomber, that the uh, Luftwaffe managed to get hold of. Uh, it's got enough distance to get over the Atlantic to drop it on New York. Um, I got an agent invo involved who was really excited about the story. Really, really, uh, this, could, this could sell. Um, and she started selling it. And literally the, the next day after she started making calls, 9-11 happened. And she called me back. She said, I'm sorry, Alex, this, is, this film will never in our lifetime get made. And, and quite rightly so. I mean, it's it's it's... It would be insensitive, I think, to make something like that, but it's the creative world we live in, you know, it's, reality gets in the way of, of uh, projects sometimes, like COVID has gotten in the way of a lot of TV and film projects. Do you know, I've actually forgotten what the original question was. <laughs> uh, it's fine. Probably, yeah, I can't remember either. Um, <laughs> so what eventually led you to writing crime fiction? 
Crime fiction. So I've I've always loved crime fiction. I go back. My roots go back to the nineties with um, oh gosh, Thomas Harris. So the the you know the um, Red Dragon, Hannibal Lecter, Silence of the Lambs. Um, that's kind of where my my crime background is for books. Um, so I've always been um, when I was younger, very much. Um, into uh, American crime um, because of the whole work of the FBI on behavioral sciences. They were obviously holding the torch and leading the way on that. Um, and uh, you probably have seen Mindhunter on Netflix. Isn't that good? I read the book actually. I preferred the book, I think. <laughs> oh, the drama's been done really, really well. It could have been very sensationalist um, and could have been sort of. Um, very much focused on the on the grisly parts, but it's not. It's focused on the building the the, uh, the language of forensic psychology, and um, it's a fascinating uh, show. And and you, as you know, a fascinating book. So um, it's, it's that kind of um, DNA, I suppose, that where my crimes come from. But I definitely, when I started writing, didn't want to do an American setting uh, or American culture, um, uh, just just because I wouldn't be able to do it justice. Um, and I don't know, I'll be honest with you, I've fallen a little bit out of love with America since um, a certain chap came into power. Thank God he's gone. Um, and so, yeah, I, I'm very much um, happy to set my stuff at home. Hastings, by the way, uh, I, I lived there about 10 years ago, which is why I said it's somewhere I'm familiar with. But um, anybody who lives in Hastings will know that um, a lot's changed in the last 10 years. So when I was living there, it was really kind of tired. Not, it was a town with a great future behind it. Um, and it was, it was beginning to feel a little bit seedy. And, and then the, the old pier, Hastings old pier burnt down. And um, that was, it was full of character. It had all these little stalls on it. And, and then they built this really cool modern version, which, which is great. I mean, we've, we've all got to move on and, and look forward and, uh, there's nothing wrong with a sort of a, I don't know, Bauhaus style pier, but it, it, it loses its charm a little bit. So it was fine when I was writing this, uh, Silent Tide, it was, um, I kept referring to a Hastings that I had to remind myself isn't really there anymore. It's changed quite a lot. <laughs> Be interesting. I, I have yet to get any hate mail from Hastings saying, you've got it wrong, but I think, I think yeah. <laughs> yeah, people are particularly picky. Um, mm. Did you have a lot of trouble with seagulls when you lived in Hastings? Yes. <laughs> oh you my goodness, they, they really are yobbos. They really are a bunch of yobs. Um, and I, I remember, because when I was living there, I was me and my wife, and my, my boy was only about four then, Jacob. And um, he was terrified because, because they used to dive bomb him. I, I mean, they, they were drawn to him like a magnet. And... Um, it was quite, you know, it could be quite intimidating having these these thugs come down at you and, and literally take food from your hand without without any kind of uh, fear. Um, so obviously, I mean, that was going to feature in the Boyd books, and I thought, well, why not make Boyd suffer like my son did? <laughs> oh yeah, it's uh, definitely some very light-hearted moments when you mention <laughs> makes me laugh. <laughs> Um, and obviously, we've got to talk about Aussie. Yeah. Hey, hey Aussie. Yo, Aussie. Let's see if he's around. He's got. Uh, hey, buddy. Aussie. Come here, buddy. Come Where are you? Come here. All right. I'll tell you what does work is a treat. <laughs> What's this? What's this? Aussie. Aussie. Oswald, look, 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 a treat. <laughs> All right, he was really keen for a treat. No, there we go. Would you like to say hello? Come here, come here. Come on. I'll just quickly show you. Come on, come on. Oh, so there's Ozzy. Oh, he's so cute. <laughs> he's, a, he's a lot of fun. Oh, look, I've made him a little badge. <laughs> You're awesome. <laughs> Oh, he's a lot of fun, is Ozzy. Um, he's also a bit hard of hearing, so 
quite often, you know, the only way you can get his attention is by waggling around a, a little snack um, and being very visual and he'll, he'll sort of cue into what you're doing. But I think one ear is completely gone and the other one's, yeah. <laughs> I've got a blind dog, so you can imagine how much fun that is. Yeah, yeah. It's funny how they overcompensate with different uh, senses, isn't it? They can, they really can adjust probably better than we can. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, well, most of the time it's incredible until you hear a whack in the kitchen because <laughs> you walked into a cupboard again. <laughs> That's not fun. That's not fun. It's <laughs> fine. I know it shouldn't laugh, but honestly, it's been blowing like two years. He should know by now, but it doesn't just slightly whack as well. It properly bangs. You're like, that's got to hurt. <laughs> yeah. Well, you can have this one, last one, but then it's, I don't want to ruin your tea. Come on then. <laughs> oh, okay. You have the rest as well. He's, he's obviously, um, you, you may have noticed, very food focused. Um, this is how we bribe him to do the photo shoots. <laughs> no, he's, um, he's a lovely boy. So, what made you make him such a big part of the Boyd books? Well, because, um, so he's a rescue dog. We got him um, two or three years ago um, and from uh, a group of people called Spaniel Aid. Um, and they find um, homes for dogs that have just been uh, abandoned or left. And he's had a really checkered past for Ozzy. He, um, he's been through three or four homes. He's had several years on the streets, one year stuck in a shed. Um, he's had a real rough start to life and, and it was nice to be, to be able to find him a home because um, he's what, nine now, aren't you mate? Nine. So it's just, he's had a rough first seven or eight years of his life. No, no, six years of his life, I guess. And just to give him a, a sort of a second half that's really comfy and really loving and, and he pays back in spades, he really does. There's so much... Um, gratitude and everything I can I need to sense that um, he knows it's not a good thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's a lovely lad yeah he's gorgeous uh, he's got so much personality as well he um I have to say though the the the, the poo on the pillow is, is not based on on on, on it hasn't happened yet <laughs> <laughs> those of you who read you know what I'm talking about <laughs> Yes, yes, that does ring a bell, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you never know. They do like to leave you surprises. Well, especially if it's a protest. <laughs> You've been out six hours. I think it's time for a poo on the pillow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it could be an hour or 10 minutes. They're not fussy. If they feel aggrieved, then you'll be punished. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you wrote the first Boyd book, did you know that you were going to be writing a series? Oh, definitely. I, I think um, you, I, this is the difference between, I think, publishing independently and publishing traditionally. So traditionally, I found with publishers, they, they, they tread very lightly. So they go, well, we like this book, um, but we'll see how it goes before we say maybe we'll commission book two or book three. And so as a writer, you're, you're troubled to see you have this narrative arc that you don't know how long or wide it's going to be so you're constantly thinking well if I write one book do I create enough resolution in case they don't sign up book two and book three uh, or do I create an art that's two books long two books long in case they don't do three but they do two so you're in this constant sort of wobbling sort of phase where you how do I resolve it how do I resolve it whereas obviously being self-published we um we know exactly how long our art's going to be um and it's allowed me then to think forward with plots and, and character arcs um, and to know, uh, to plan a lot more um, how it goes. So again, another liberating thing that comes of self-publishing. I, I had um, with Time Riders, Time Riders was a, with Puffin books, it's a teen series. And bless them, when they commissioned the first one, they said, uh, how, how many in the series? Are we, are we talking, uh, we're talking as many as three? <laughs> <laughs> and I said to them, no, I'd like to make it nine. Uh, I, I think I was young, um, younger and more impetuous then, but I, I thought I'll, I'll try and look. Uh, and uh, they said, nine, you've got nine stories. 
and I was like, yeah. <laughs> uh, um, but I had to I spend a few frantic weeks knocking up nine together and a, an arc that would go for, for nine books and um, they committed to it and blessed them for doing that because it allowed, it did actually work as a nine book series. Uh, I, I'm not saying how many is in this series because um, we want to have some wriggle room there, but um, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but this way, at least nine. <laughs> Um, I like actually that because Boyd's moved down, then he's getting to know the team. And because it's a new series, then because we are as well, it's quite nice. And they all bond, which is really lovely. It's mm. nice. I like that. I think it's uh, for me, it's just my personal take on, on, on the genre, but um, it does seem like a plot heavy genre. But in actual fact, I think like, like the, the best books in every genre, it, it really is always about the characters it's all about the characters um, what the plot is there to do is provide movement for your characters for something for them to do but if you don't have the characters there what you've basically got is a sort of a 300 page chase and i think that works the same with, with films i mean um i was talking to my son about um films we liked and didn't like and you know we're, we're a pair of nerds so we we we, I remember going back a few years when the first Transformers movie uh, came out. We saw the trailer for it and we looked at each other and thought, that looks awesome! 80-foot <laughs> robot smashing that crap out of each other, what's not to like? And we were the first two nerds in the, in the queue with our ticket the day it opened. Then we came out two hours later and I was like, that was the most tedious thing ever. They gave us two hours of explosions and action and chases. And actually, you know, they're giving you what you thought you wanted which was a, yeah, a lot of smashing up robots. But actually, if you give somebody two hours of that, it's tedious. There's no, there's no room for dynamics of character. And, and so I've always, um, when I do workshops at schools, I, I, I use that as an example. I mean, if you think you really want to have a two hour car chase, like which one was that? Quantum of Solace was the Bond movie, which is basically two hours of, of fight and chase. <laughs> <laughs> you're missing a point. It is about characters and the dynamics of the characters. Yeah, well, you definitely nailed that. And the sort of um, extra, you know, characters, I can't think of the proper word, but you know what I mean. Mm. Well, it's, I mean, you know, you can have um, minor characters and as a, as a book writer, you might have a character whose sole purpose is to walk in chapter 32 and go, well, I found the report, you know, but um, if you're going to do that, if you're going to have PC Joe Smith walks in with that report, um, if he's ever going to crop up again, you've got to start thinking of a backstory for him because otherwise, you know, you're creating names and faces that are irrelevant to to the pages, you, the words you're putting on the page. You've really got to get them to, to, to kind of mesh. Otherwise, they are just extras, you know. Unnecessary moving parts. Um, which out of all of your books you've written so far would you like to be a character in? Oh, that's a good question. I'll tell you what, I, I shouldn't be a character in the Void series because uh, I've got a lot of respect. I haven't done the research for the uh, the crime uh, genre, that, but there isn't room for um, going off book, you know? It's, it's nice in, in, in drama attention to have a guy who's a bit of a wild card. And maybe that can work as a private eye. But I think it's something like the police force where, where they are so, so kind of like boxed in by um, the things they have to get right. Otherwise the CPS can't take it any further. That, you know, there is procedure and it's there for a good reason. Uh, and I think I, I'm just the kind of person who would, who would think, I'm not a team player, I'll do it my way. Uh, the kind of guy who would not last five minutes in the police. I think um, the characters I'd like to be, I suppose, yeah, I mean, I would love to time travel. Uh, I, I often find myself drawn to, um, do you ever go to these reenactment things where you get people dressing up of um, English Civil War or, have, have you ever been, been to this? Yeah, I have, yeah, I have been. I don't know if you ever go, they, they sometimes have behind the scenes, so they have like a, camp, a living camp where they're all sort of set up with their tents 
uh, and that's where they go between the battles they reenact. And sometimes they, they open the doors to the public um, and you can wander around the living camp and you get those sort of, those really visceral things like the smells that no historian can really tell you about, but a reenactor can because they live the life and they will tell you that, you know, um, you know, back then, the only way we could get a fire's going was with dung, you know? So yes, the campfire is gonna smell a little of, of dung. Um, and as Roman soldiers will tell you, no, they didn't just put the helmets on. They used to have a little uh, beanie. They used to wear little beanies. <laughs> and they worked that out by living the life themselves, which is something that an academic historian can't, can't or doesn't do. So um, yeah, I think uh, history and, and being able to go back in time would be, uh, would be what I'd like to do if I could go into one of my books, one of my characters who are in time writers. And which of your characters so far has been the most fun to write? Uh -huh, good question. I think, uh, so Debbie was asking me that, um, you know, which of the uh, characters are fun to write. And uh, I suppose the, the one that's on a superficial level, the most fun to write is the, um, the in-house CSI manager, a, a guy called Sully, who is to all intents and purposes. I mean, this is not how I want you to visualize him, but he, uh, I think he's very, he very much reminds me of Sheldon from Big Bang. <laughs> uh, but in terms of the other characters, um, I think um, I've worked out what, who they are. Boyd is me as, as, as a grumpy old dad. Um, and Okaki is actually me as a much younger idealistic person. So Akaki, for those who have not read it, is, is a, a young DC. Uh, I would say she's very, very early 30s, late 20s. She's not that old. Well, I mean, for me, it's young. <laughs> and um, and she's, she's lived a bit. She's been a nurse. She's, been a, uh, she's done a degree in, in, in medicine. And she's finally comes to the police. Um, but she has that, that fire in her belly that, that young people have that that is, this isn't right and we should put it right. And Boyd's more sort of, he's 46, so a little bit younger than me, uh, but he's world weary. You know, he, a long time ago, he used to believe in fighting the good fight, but now it's just getting by. And I, and I like how that works. Not, they don't butt heads because I just don't, I can't stand um, contrived conflict. You know that thing in a movie where the really handsome guy rescues the princess and they don't get on, but you're kind of going, oh, yeah, we know you're going to get it together by the end of the film. <laughs> That's contrived conflicts because this scriptwriter wants you to go, oh, they're not going to like each other. And then, oh, surprise, they've got together at the end. That's <laughs> contrived conflict. I hate that, you know? And you can see it, it's broadcast sometimes with a big bugle uh, in so many dramas uh, and books as well, where, where you could, they go, you know, you can see they bristle at each other, but you know there'll be a grudging respect by the end of the book. Um, and I think in real life, we, we, we're not like those sorts of um, two-dimensional characters. We, we, we don't fight for the sake of it. We don't argue for the sake of it. If there's an argument, there's a real reason behind it. And it's not done necessarily with malice. It's because, you know, I want it to be blue. I want it to be green. And then there's an argument to it. But there's not, and we'll argue just because we need to fill pages. <laughs> so Okaki and Boy don't, don't really argue, but they have, they have different worldviews. Um, Boyd is politically agnostic. And I think Okaki is probably more uh, uh, liberal. Um, and they, they clash of those things occasionally. Not that I do much in my politics, but worldview, the worldview of the young versus the worldview of the middle-aged. Um, what's been your favorite moment so far being an author? Um, oh, well, I'm sure every author must say the same thing to you. That first book that you first get published and you first see in in Waterstones, uh, or back then, Otticas, <laughs> where did they go? Um, it's just such a, it's such a high. I mean, it's it's incredible because, um, you know, have this thing that's material that you've been working a year on, um, but then the magic of it is that you've, you've created this little world between two covers and you, uh, you're inviting people into this world. You, I mean, you're like the host of a party or, like an admin for Minecraft, you've created the world, you've made the rules, and you said, now you can come in, but you know, you're gonna have to behave, these are the rules of my world. Um, and you, it's, it's a it's godlike power to be able to do that, to, to make the world invite people in and look at it. Um, and to, to meet people you have made 
from words that's i don't know i mean it's that's so so powerful i i get so much of a kick when i sort of when i talk to people who've read the books and and they they talk to me about these people like they're they're real and i i, I know they they are they're basically three or four pages of full scat on my desk but that's powerful it really is it's, it's uh, alchemy you know i love it yeah um I mean, one of my favorite fictional characters is Bliss. And I talk about him all the time, like he's real, but he isn't, <laughs> and it sucks. Yeah, well you do, it's like that thing, um, when people lie, they are creating a narrative. So if, if you said to me, where have you just been? And I, and I went, uh, say, oh, I just went to the shops, but I didn't. For you, I've told you something and you'll take it as a world fact. You build it into your world model and it's complete. For me, it's just a narrative, uh, and that can trip me up because I've told a lie, and I have to remember that narrative. Whereas you, it's installed into your worldview, and I think it's the same with characters. People read the book; the character becomes embedded in their worldview, and becomes much more rounded. But the guy who wrote the character will always know it's a bunch of fictional things on a piece of paper that that you're just, oh yeah, yeah, he could smoke a pipe, you know. But for you, he's always smoked a pipe. It's it's quite quite weird. That. Um, what's the most interesting thing you found out researching for any of your books? Interesting. Um, well, uh, research, I, I've been fascinated by, um, forensics is always fascinating, um, about the, uh, the sort of the lifespan of various parts of, of the soft tissue body, you know, that, that can be preserved and how long they can last. Uh, and how much you can get. But equally, I've been fascinated. Um, Kate Bendelow, um, you, you, you know her, I think, um, did a very interesting talk on, uh, on forensics and fingerprints. And um, she was saying that um, how uh, few surfaces do actually retain fingerprints that are usable, that you literally are looking at something that's almost glass smooth. Uh, when you get people talking about, um, we got the fingerprints off the steering wheel, and if it's, well, it's a leather effect steering wheel, but there's little sort of grooves, you're not going to get prints that you can work from from there. Uh, I found that out having written my first book where there were fingerprints on the steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> but you just don't think of that. Um, the, I think um, the whole CSI TV show thing where they can, they can literally do anything from the forensics. And then the, the reality of it, um, that's been quite an eye opener. And then there's, there's um, arcane forensics, which I found, not that it's relevant to the writing, but it's something that I've, I've veered off path to look at, which is uh, the notion of uh, phrenology. Do you know about that? Yeah, reading. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I've uh, nearly finished a forensics degree, so I know more than you would think. <laughs> yeah, I mean, crazy, isn't it? That, oh. He's got a bump there that means he has a mother fixation you know it's <laughs> absolutely well, that's how they used to decide criminals on their height and their appearance it wasn't mm. it was nothing to do with you know evidence and anything else it was what they looked like if they had a certain size head and it was mad absolutely, absolutely. mental um and what was the other thing in victorian times they thought the iris retained the last image seen yeah. <laughs> like celluloid yeah <laughs> yeah um and the first use of um fingerprinting was as like um a security for payment um for like goods um farming you know stuff that's when they started using fingerprints it wasn't anything to do with crime yeah i didn't know that yeah there you go i could tell you loads of stuff yeah. I love it. <laughs> what, what did, um, did you, so you've completed your forensics degree or are you, are you in the process of doing I it? I have or? an exam on the 27th and that's the last thing and then I will have finished it, hopefully, if I haven't failed all the rest of the stuff. <laughs> what do you want to do with them? I have no idea. I really don't know. It isn't helpful, is it? Well, I, I mean, are you thinking of, sort of um, working for police, forensic pathologist, working with um, CSI? Maybe, but the pay isn't as good as you think it would be. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't uh, all those lovely squishy bits. I know, I've done my um, dissertation on uh, entomology, so insects. 
Yeah. And doing that, I was like, what was I thinking? Some of this is gross. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's the future of our diet is insects. Yeah, so I keep hearing. Well, thank you for, do you like prawns? Okay, because uh, I, I try and help people understand that insect protein, which will be our future diet if we're going to survive this planet. Um, if you can think of, if you can eat prawns, then then you can eat other insects because they're the same family and it tastes just the same. Just they're just big or smaller, different number of legs, but you know it's still yeah, tasty protein. Doesn't help. <laughs> I'm not selling the idea, am I? No. <laughs> You totally made me lose my train of thought now as well. <laughs> we were talking about something sensible, book related, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, who would I want to be? Oh, that's, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Um, so, what was, oh, I was, yeah, research, that's it, and forensics, that's how we got there. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, been, it's been fun doing, doing the, the research um, and there's so many great resources. So um, uh, Graham Bartlett on UKCBC, what a star. He, um, and he's, he's, he's really generous with it as well. Uh, I, I can see, you know, rightly so, he's trying to monetize it. Um, but he, you know, you think anybody who's like trying to monetize would be going, no, I'm not gonna tell you anything unless you pay. I'll take your long <laughs> number, please. None of that. He, uh, He's really, really quite giving, I think. Yeah, I interviewed him. He was lovely. Good guy. Yeah, yeah, there's some some cool people. Um, do you have lots of author friends? Um, not not really. Um, um, there's one or two that I, I, I know quite well. Um, uh, Alex Smith. Um, as you, do you know do you know Alex Smith? I know the name from around the groups and I probably do know him, but I know so many people. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, his full name is Gordon uh, Alexander Smith. Uh, and he used to write uh, teen fiction at the same time I was writing it. So we used to uh, cross paths at, at uh, schools when we used to visit all the time. Um, yeah, um, and uh, A.D. Fox is Ali Sparks. Um, she's, she's a good writer, I like her stuff. Um, but I, I don't know lots of authors, and I think possibly just because we don't get out much, we tend to be stuck at home writing and not socialising. And you've got to talk about Will Hussey, surely. He's a oh, good yes. friend. Oh, yes, Will, yeah. You, I, love you, I think you'd offend him if you didn't mention him. <laughs> right. You say that, I'm actually halfway through um, this book of Bill's. It yep. is so good. I mean, this is the kind of writing that makes me go, I've got to up my game. It's really, really good. Um, plug the outrage. Seriously, uh, I would say it's um, *Handmaid's Tale* meets dystopian future uh, with uh, LGBTQ issues. You know, it's really, really good. Yeah, that's my plan for this evening: is to read that. Oh, you're reading it as well. Oh, nice. One. Yeah, I read *The Outrage* and it completely ruined me. Like I didn't even realize when I finished that I was crying, but I just oh. had tears. Just I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's music to a writer's ears. That's back of a mess. Yeah. Except for Tony Forder, he just laughs because he's bastard. <laughs> <laughs> he knows it as well. I've told him. <laughs> um, and do you get a lot of feedback from your readers? Yeah, there's been um, some really lovely feedback. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad uh, to have it because stepping into crime for me as a writer is a new, it's a big step. It's out of my comfort zone. I used to write thrillers, I used to write team, but now I'm writing crime. Um, and you do feel like um, the new kid at school, you know, your, your first, day, first day of their September term, you're turning up with your, your slider all and go, I know about crime. <laughs> um, and so it's a bit of a nerve wracking thing, publishing um, in a new genre. Oh, Watson, stop that. This is the other Spaniel one. Come here. Let's say hello to Donna. Get, all right. Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> Are you stepping up or not? No? Okay. Um, so it is quite um, reassuring to get those first few reviews that, that 
tell you that you haven't written a pile of rubbish, you know, that it does hang together, that you, um, your research does stack up. Um, and once you get past those, those, I guess the first sort of dozen reviews, then, then if, if a stinging one star comes along, you can, you can absorb that and <laughs> cope. <laughs> but if the first review you get to one star, it's like, okay, I give up. <laughs> and this is Watson. Yeah, I know, I know. Okay, Daddy, Daddy's having a conversation. Because <laughs> um, you have Leslie Lloyd, don't you, as one of your beta readers? Oh, uh, she's fantastic. She, she, she's really forensic. Um, so we have had her as a beta reader, and she's she saved my blushes a number of times with some some real corkers. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what they are. <laughs> no <laughs> one will know. That's all right. We're good friends, me and Leslie, so I just ask her. It's fine. <laughs> She's, she's one of my biggest supporters, and I don't even write. She's just amazing. I think she's awesome. She's very active, isn't she? Uh, she gets a, a, a lot done. And I know, even I, she says that I do a lot, and it's like, well, she's just read this and then this and done this, and I'm like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Did you manage to fit any breathing in that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, people ask if I sleep, but she seems to read loads. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, she's she's brilliant and, and great to have um, looking through the, the, the rough first drafts. Um, we've got a, a few, uh, I think they've all come through UKCBC, that's how we met them. Um, and they have been um, absolute lifesavers when it comes to the um, spotting those, those gotcha moments. Yeah, I was reading the forensics bits carefully, but they were all fine, so you're all right. <laughs> Thanks, guys. But the um, horrible thing is, you know, when you when you when you go to print, well, actually, it's less so the case when you're an independent writer. But traditionally, obviously, when you go to print and something is found post-print, that's that's sort of five thousand books are going to have to be pulped. That's a big, big, big problem. So um, I suppose it, with being this sort of print on demand, it's, it's less. You just have to change the, the the manuscript and update it. But still, I'd rather not have anyone see a mistake. And I, I don't know, you know, when you're having so many arc readers and beta readers, how many spelling mistakes still escape? It's, yeah. It's mad. Isn't it? I, you still get, like, um, classics, you know, like a Dickens book. And then there's, there's errors. I, I think probably what's happened is these are new errors that have crept in. You crept in, you haven't, you're not actually spotting a, a typo, uh, a scribble that Dickens made. <laughs> but, you know, even, even many, many decades later after the first publication these things can still be there yeah and everyone's looked through it and, and scanned it and, oh it's sorry and there it is <laughs> perhaps no one dares question dickens <laughs> <laughs> perhaps they think he, he meant to write he, that he was paid by the word you know that <laughs> that's why his books are so long he used to uh, serialize them in the papers and he was like okay can we make that 27 episodes for this book <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that wasn't surprise me at all. That's why I can't bloody read them. <laughs> um, if you were able to spend a day with any author, dead or alive, who would you like to spend a day with? Wow, that's a good question. Um, well, I am. When you say author, can I can I can I stretch that to um, not fiction but uh, factual writing? Depends on who it is. Richard Dawkins. Yeah, right then. So I have an absolute man crush on Richard Dawkins. Um, Debbie was, uh, used to work Waterstones and events, and she organised an event uh, with Richard Dawkins at UEA, uh, University of East Anglia. And I managed to get a freebie ticket uh, to the event. And um, afterwards, uh, I was in the book signing queue, and uh, I had my book, and uh, and Debbie arranged for me to have, like, you can have a minute with him if you like. I turned up my book, and I was just... I was trembling all over and I, I couldn't string a, a sentence together. And um, I've, I've never fanboyed like that in my life. But, you know, for me, the guy is a torch of enlightenment in, in, a, in a dark time where, you know, it's all about your facts versus my facts or fake news. You know, you need to have these, these, 
these flagpole holders who are saying, no, this is, a, is, a, is a, an actual fact. And uh, you can calibrate your thinking from this fact, but you can't move this post. Uh, there are not enough people like that at the moment. And I think everything feels so, I think this is why we're seeing a lot of sort of um, populist politics. We're seeing a lot of uh, aggressive bipartisan politics, uh, sorry, partisan politics and things like what's happening in Israel um, is down to the fact that, that there is no, there are no firm markers in the ground as to what is, you know, true and what isn't. Um, and people like him, I think now are incredibly valuable. Uh, but yeah, I've always been, ever since I read The Selfish Gene, I just, the guys are amazing. <laughs> oh, I love the author's fanboy and fangirl over other authors. It's just, it's cute. <laughs> what are you going to do when us weird women from the computer see you at some book signing event and do the same? Oh, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I am. I'm, luckily, I am. I'm not an intellectual giant. I am. Um, I, just, I need a lot of looking after, as Debbie will tell you. I'm a bit of an idiot. Um, but I'd hate to. You know, I'd hate to sort of um, to have people kind of feeling that nervous about me. I'm a regular guy, but there are people that deserve that kind of awe. You know, uh, it's right that you should dribble and maybe. Do a little wee you know, if you see them. <laughs> you cut that bit out. No, I told you, I told you beforehand, there's no editing. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what do you like to do when you're not writing? Uh, <laughs> it's playtime, look. <laughs> Um, when I'm not uh, writing, I, I like to do a lot of uh, painting. Um, I do canvases, um, portraits, um, uh, creative artsy stuff. Um, um, that's, that's it. I don't really have a wildly exciting life. Um, I think I'd like to, when I get older, um, maybe, and I've got more time to fill, I might like to try and join a sort of a local drama club or something and, and just ponce around on the stage and do that the old Hugh Laurie thing from from Blackadder the tra training into public speak legs <laughs> <laughs> apart <laughs> oh well if you did you'd have to let us know because I'd totally come and watch that it'd be hilarious <laughs> Um, who was your first celebrity crush? <laughs> well, I suppose Richard Dawkins. No, uh, before that, I think probably <laughs> Tintin. I used to, uh, so, so my big reading when I was uh, young, before I got to, to books, was, was Tintin. So I went through the, the entire collection. Um, and yeah, Tintin was, was um, I liked, I realise now how shallow that character is. It is basically a boy reporter who has no emotions other than inquisitiveness uh, and endless positivity but um, I think yeah as an escapist character uh, I just it was great just, just tagging onto his coattails and going to all these amazing places with Captain Haddock and Snowy um, so yeah uh, he was my my first sort of crush uh, and then Richard Dawkins, Richard Dawkins. <laughs> My, my crushes are always, uh, so I think they're, 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 you know, they're just intellectual ones. Um, uh, I've, I've never sort of, I suppose when you reach your teenage years and, and if, you, if you're if you straight, then you, you go to Pamela Anderson or whatever, but that, that, I miss that stage. Fair enough. <laughs> Showing my age there. There you go. You can probably work it out now. <laughs> I've got a rough idea, I think. <laughs> I play Major David Hasselhoff. <laughs> I wouldn't have put you that old, actually. I said you were I younger. I don't know how old he is, though. It was just a random thing. He's probably in his, what, mid-60s? Yeah, I don't know. I guess he must be, actually. Yeah, sort of 50 plus, so I have to Google after and see. <laughs> um, what's the most embarrassing thing that's ever happened to you? <laughs> oh, that's horrible. Um, I know. 
I've got to have fun as well. Well, I remember, um, yeah, this, this is quite horrible. This is, so I was uh, beginning of my writing career. I had a, a literary agent who was, who was literally, you know, a guy working out the back of a van. Well, not literary, but right at the bo bottom of the whole sort of literary agent food, food uh, scale. And, um, and he wasn't doing much good for me. Uh, and I tried my luck with one of the biggest literary agencies in the world. And I thought, well, if, if I can just get somebody to look at my email and give me a go, you, you never know. And um, so I managed to get uh, uh, my foot in the door with this huge, I won't say who the agency is because I, I shouldn't do it. I won't do any names, but big, big agency. And one of the top agents in that agency said, yeah, I'll represent you. It's good stuff. I'm, I'm happy to represent you. Um, she said, um, obviously, we need to meet uh, in London. Uh, just make sure you're not you know, an axe murderer or anything. And um, But the uh, best way for us to meet is um, the MD is holding a, a party in his Belgravia house uh, tonight. So just come along to that. It's uh, we, that'd be quite nice. There'll be canapes, wine. There's a jazz band in the garden, a marquee. And um, I was living up in, in Norwich then. And uh, I said, so what, like four hours from now? She said, yeah, you can get down and um, we can have a chat over a glass of wine. and. So I, I came down to, to London and um, found my way to, to Belgravia and, and to the most, uh, is it, I think, what is it? Is it Eaton Square or something in Belgravia? There's one square that is just silly, silly rich. And it's one of those. And um, uh, I was ushered inside. And yes, they did have a garden big enough for Marquee in central London with a jazz band in it. <laughs> And um, I was sort of seeing people I recognised that, you know, um, I think I saw, who did I see there? I, I swear I saw the uh, director, David Putnam. Um, and there were one or two others. I won't do any more name dropping, but some, you know, it's like, ow, wow. Um, I said, okay, Alex, just be calm, okay? Um, you can have one glass of wine, um, but that is it. You've got to have your A game because this is your big break. So don't, don't have any more than that. And I remember the last thing I remember, <laughs> about 8.30 in the evening, and I've been talking to the guy who, who'd written um, uh, one of the Star Wars scripts, um, Phantom Menace, I think it was. Um, so, uh, and that's the last thing I remember saying, talking to him and I vaguely recall the worlds of tilting but that is about it the next thing I remember is waking up in A&E in a hospital in Acton um, and it was sort of early as the morning this by the way I should say the whole thing occurred in December it was a really cold snap December and um, I found out from the, the paramedics working on me and well, nurses and stuff that I'd been found um, wandering around uh, the back streets of Soho, uh, freezing cold, and, I, I, and then some, somebody see me go, go against a brick wall and just slide down and leaving a sort of skin trail behind. I did, I had a, I, uh, on the side of my face. And they had me all wrapped up in these thermal bags and I was, I was nearly sort of hypothermic. And the thing was, I had an official contract signing meeting the next morning, 9 a.m. And so, <laughs> stinking rubbish and <laughs> with a big scab down the side of my face uh, and, and looking worse for work I managed to make my way back into town um, and to the the offices of this uh, agency by nine in the morning uh, looking like like the world's biggest hobo uh, they let me in but I was terrified that um, they were going to say are you aware what you did last night <laughs> Um, when I said that to my agent, I said, I can't remember anything after half eight. She says, no one can. Apparently the, <laughs> apparently the wine waiters were all new staff and they've been briefed to just keep glasses full. So everyone was going, I'm just going to wine glass. And when you talk, you're looking away and, and you think you drink the same glass of wine. <laughs> everyone had been apparently completely slaughtered. There's, it's, there's six hours of tape somewhere, I think, for a lot of famous people. <laughs> all surface one day. <laughs> oh, brilliant. <laughs>
I'm guessing you, you didn't get the contract, or did you? <laughs> no, I did. I signed with them. Um, and uh, yeah, I was with them for about five years and I've moved on since. But yeah, that was my, my and a literary agent, again, is another part of this big creaking machine, which is traditional publishing. Again, you don't need a literary agent if you're doing it yourself. It's, some, uh, it's a nice thing not to have to go through these various sort of filters with an idea. Um, what's your biggest dream? as an author gosh um i don't know um i i my biggest dream i suppose is is to um is to have it's a really lame thing yes i have a book that everyone likes to read and, and you can make money from it and i i think um having a long running series long enough that, that the characters uh have the oxygen to become almost real for me and that will take it does take a few books i mean time riders i had nine books by the end of it uh, when i finished the last book i i had this thing where at night when i was lying in bed and it was completely quiet and there weren't things disturbing me this stands well i had them chatting to me uh and you only get that i think when you when you've you've lived with characters long enough otherwise they are just bit part players in a, in a you know three set piece three acts uh, story and i think um yeah i i would like to to live with uh, boyd and okaki and sully and the rest of the guy i'd like to get to know them as as people and that, that will happen in due course good i'm glad to hear that because i want to get to know them more as well <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's weird though eh? creating people from bits of yourself it's very frankenstein isn't it yeah <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so what are you working on at the moment and what is coming next? Uh, well, I've finished the first draft of book three. As of Monday, I'm going to be um, going to be snowed under with doing some script work. So one of my thrillers from about 10 years ago finally has been greenlit for uh, a miniseries. Um, I, I don't know whether it's going to be Hulu or Netflix or whatever, but they have, uh, because of the whole COVID things, upset the apple cart. It was going to go into production last, um, I think last January, and then it also stopped with March and what have you, um, the lockdowns. So they're, they're now, obviously, they're the whole, their whole schedule has been pushed into a much smaller envelope and they need to start filming pretty soon. So they've They've assembled a writer's room of, of writers and I'm, I'm one of them and we're going to have to basically close the door on ourselves and, and write solidly for six weeks to get shooting scripts ready for, for the um, production. So that's going to be a really weird just to be jerking my head out of Boyd and Hastings and then going somewhere else entirely for six weeks and coming back to start book four. Awesome. Well, I don't think I have any more questions unless you think there's anything I haven't asked you that you want to tell us. Um, yeah, uh, I do actually. Um, you haven't asked me whether it's Mars Bar or Snickers. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I think I think um, that that we, we covered a lot of ground this evening. I, I feel and. Um, <laughs> I'd like to pump you for as much information as I possibly can. <laughs> now it's been lovely talking to you, Donna, and thank you so much for inviting me uh, on your your podcast. Do we call this a podcast or a vodcast? No, it's just a thing. It goes all over the place. It's a podcast and it's a YouTube thing, and I don't know. <laughs> Two cast. <laughs> yeah. So would you like to shamelessly plug your book that is out today before we go? Yes, why not? Um, it is. Oh, no, that, by the way, is what you should be reading. Not <laughs> this that came out today. But I'm pleased to do it at some point. Um, Old Bones, New Bones, book two in the DCI Boyd series um, came out today, which is the 14th. And uh, I really hope you like it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Well, I did, as you know, from my review, <laughs> and most people so far seem to have as well. Yeah, thank you for that review, by the way. That was that was lovely. You're welcome. You deserved it. <laughs> oh, <damn> it. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, and would you also like to tell people where they can find out more about you and where they can actually buy your books from? Yeah, so uh, I've got a website, alexgarrow.com. Um, so we we're using we used to use that for all the other books, the the time writers and, and the, the thrillers, but uh, it's now exclusively for Boyd and Gang. So um, all the sort of um, release dates um, that are coming up for the various books, the information's there. There's also I like doing puzzles. So there's something you can do if you want to um, come to the website um, and I've got these puzzles like uh, murder scenes. Um, like buildings in cross section, you've got there will be apartments and people inside, and you you could you can work out the crime. Um, if you want to have a go at those, they could be fun. <laughs> awesome. Um, well, that's it. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, thanks for chatting to me. I shall now go and see if my dad's taking his antibiotics yet. <sighs> Let's put loads of teeth. <laughs> Thanks for listening to my podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please remember that you can view the video on my Facebook page, Donna's Interviews, Reviews and Giveaways, or you can also review the video on YouTube. Um, just search for my name, uh, Donna Morfitt. Her uh, surname's M-O-R-F-E-T-T, and you should be able to find it quite easily. Um, if you want any people to be interviewed, then please let me know, and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Thank you.